a fantastic book. Simply groundbreaking. I think it's very important. This book I've read. Extremely uh, interesting. Absolutely stupendous. Fun to read. Very well researched. Just phenomenal. Very profound. Welcome to episode 7 of the Asian Aspiration Podcast. I'm your host, Marie Noel Ngokolo, and it's a pleasure and honor to be in your ears today. On today's episode, we'll be looking at the role of the private sector in Africa's development trajectory. And as always with me here will be Emily, a co-author of the book. We'll hear from her shortly. Before we get started, do remember to like, share, and engage with the content we're talking about. We'd love to hear from you. Hi, Emily. How are you doing today? Your favorite question ever. <laughs> well, keeping uh, keeping quarantined and healthy. That's important. We must. As much as we can. Yes, indeed. Um, but yeah, no, thanks a lot for availing yourself to have this chat. Um, to get us started. Putting myself at risk. At you know, risk, right? Leaving my house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the dangers out there, Emily. Good grief. So to get us started, Emily, the conversation around the role of the private sector often comes to sort of this idea of the state-led versus private sector-led style of development. What have you garnered from your research on this topic, considering the Asian experience? And then I'd like you to speak a bit more on how important the role of the private sector is in development today. Obviously, assuming and perhaps showing a little bit of my bias um, is the assumption that it is important. But I'll let you go ahead. In Africa, there's a clear preference for the approach of state-led development. Mm. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, it's been in the past, at least. Yes. So we, we we prefer talking about the state as an agent of development. Mm. Um, that's a, actually a very developing country approach. Um, and in Asia, we found that the, this wasn't the way. Um, the state took development very seriously, but they left basically left the private sector to do it mm. um and they and i've i feel like i've said this so many times already but maybe not on this podcast but they knew that they had to get out of the way to mm. enable that exactly so they otherwise you end up suffocating the private sector um and that's the that's often the case when you have too many state-owned enterprises crowding out private sector initiatives and i think i want to speak about vietnam here we often often use vietnam as an example for almost everything. That's probably because we spent the most time there. But um, Vietnam used to have more than 12,000 state-owned enterprises doing various things. You can just imagine some of some of the useful and very unuseful functions uh, they had. Um, and one of, one of the main things that the Vietnamese government did when they opened up to the world and started to go down, decided to go down this path of, of private sector-led development is they reduced that number down to a few hundred. Mm. I think they only have about 300 selling enterprises currently, which is a massive reduction. From what, 12,000? From 12,000. Wow. Um, still, it's still a lot, but um, that just shows you that um, they, they, really made a, they really made it a priority um, to get out of the way. Um, and many of these state-owned enterprises, which were privatized, turned into very successful 
private companies. Mm. So we write in the book about um, Vinna Milk, which is a, a used to be a state-owned milk producer mm. um, and is now a private company. Um, many others. Um, read the book for more examples. <laughs> um, but and, and in Africa, we we struggle to let go of or governments typically struggle to let go of state-owned enterprises. Um, they struggle to uh, privatize, even when it would make more sense to do so, on the grounds of state-owned enterprises being used for development. And, and as I hope the Vietnamese example shows, um, and some of the other work we've done around, for example, Ethiopia and its, its um, state-owned enterprises, especially Ethiopian Airlines, um, which has done very well, especially because it has been independent from government um, government functions and government intervention, um, it really pays to let the private sector get on with it. So we're saying that the private sector right, plays an important role in development. So what role is that exactly? It doesn't have to be exact, even though I use the word exactly, but what role is it that they can play, or I guess should play, um, in development? What are some of the things they could be doing? What spaces should they occupy? I think primarily the most important thing the private sector should be doing in Africa is creating jobs, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. Um, we all agree that's poss probably the most um, urgent need. Mm -hmm. um, we have millions and millions of young people entering the job market every year right. and, and there's not going to be jobs for them unless the private sector can create it. In South Africa, if I can use our example again, during election campaigns, the different parties almost all use the phrase jobs in some way. It's, they know it's a very... Um, popular election um, issue, mm -hmm. um, but no one really has a plan for how government will supposedly create jobs. Yeah. In many African countries, including South Africa and Namibia, we already have 50% or more of all formal employment being in government, mm. and that's just not sustainable in any way. Our mm. government wage bills are running away with us, so we need the private sector primarily to step in and create jobs. I mean, there are policies that can help. You've, you, we see some um, youth employment subsidies, for mm -hmm. example. Um, but primarily, if the private sector is healthy and growing because of foreign direct investment, you know, all of these things that just need to be in place, they are going to be able to create jobs. We, we live in a, a world that's moving toward labor replacement with technology. Mm. Um, but, but Africa is at, at the other end of that curve. And as other countries, especially Asian countries, move out of manufacturing, low-end manufacturing, there's an opportunity for us to pick it up. Mm. No, that's that's point taken. And I, I do agree with you. I, I'm one of those people that actually believes governments don't create jobs. They can't create new jobs, at least. People just get employed and get paid with taxpayer monies. So one thing I wanted to sort of clarify for anyone that's thinking, right, it's we're not saying that there's no space for um, the state in development. We are saying that the private sector does play a really important role and they need to be more active in sort of development discussions. Absolutely. Um, they, they do. And we also we're living in a time where private companies are becoming more and more aware, mm -hmm. luckily through their shareholders um, as well, of their responsibility in development. And that's right. why we have private companies stepping into the space of um, providing services that are otherwise considered um, government functions, mm. like um, connectivity, or um, even in some cases, water or sanitary, education, even health. education, health, of course. So there, needs, there, there definitely needs to be a better discussion about how government and private sector can work together mm -hmm. for this. But I think primarily, and this is the point we make in the book, 
government needs to let private sector do its job. They need to allow investment to take place without hindrance. Um, it, it just it baffles me that governments can impose the cost they do on private companies mm-hmm. at the cost of job creation. <laughs> and they don't realize this. Or they do and they don't do anything about it. Politics, man. Politics. No, I think that's really interesting. And one thing you sort of talked about that I found very fascinating when we're talking about development is sort of the role of SOEs. And you mentioned yes. um, Ethiopian Airlines being sort of the, the anomaly, if I can call it that, on the continent because yes. the likes of, you know, ESCOM or even ECG from Ghana, where I'm you know, from, it's, it's a bit of a different story. Um, and I think those things, it would be a lot easier if governments were good at, you know, selecting, quote unquote, those national champions. But that would require some ability to separate, you know, the party and the government and business and government. And that's Absolutely. something that we are completely good at yet. Um, so we do need the efficiency, competitive and profit motive, because um, that's particularly helpful, as she said, in creating jobs, alleviating poverty um, and even creating economic prosperity. A book I read recently, actually, that I thought was quite interesting is called The Prosperity Paradox. It's by Professor Clay Christensen. He just passed, uh, rest in peace. Um, Karen Dillon and Efeso Jomo in the USA, um, I found really interesting because it states that sort of the this idea that the right kind of innovation um, can not only build companies, it can also build countries. So one of the examples wow. they use is Mo Ibrahim and his building Celtel, right, which is now, I think, Airtel in most countries. So at the time that he wanted to do this, when he said he's going to build, you know, like a telecommunication thing on the continent, people laughed him out of the room. Like Africans are poor, can't even afford food, and you think they're going to get phones and mm. have networks. And like, look at the continent now, right? And this idea of when he started, especially, there weren't a lot of things in place, but he sort of showed it on. And it also connects to another thing I thought was interesting. So in the book, you write that one of the things that Japan was particularly, um, well, that made their story a bit more um, successful was this idea that they had um, a strong private sector, a supportive state, and an ability to adapt and absorb outside influences, including technology, ideas, and machines. And I just thought that it was really interesting. So even in instances where I guess the state isn't particularly strong. I guess if you look at like the idea from the prosperity paradox is this idea that the private sector, or I guess entrepreneurial people in general, can play a role in development. And I think mm. that's a very that's a very important important insight that we need to explore a bit more in development um, discussions. But anyway, that's just a random rant and I'm going off track. <laughs> um, but yeah, as always, thank you very much for sharing your insight with me. Um, and on to the next phase of the podcast. So as usual, we pose questions to some policy experts and practitioners and just general experts in this field. Um, today, we had the chance to do exactly that with this topic. In speaking about the private sector and the role of the private sector in development, we had the chance to speak with Jonathan Oppenheimer. Jonathan apart from being a proud South African businessman and philanthropist, is the founder of Oppenheimer Partners and a family member and executive chairman of Oppenheimer Generations, amongst other things. His family's name has come up quite recently all over the world, um, most importantly because of the 1 billion rand South African Future Trust established by both him and his father, Nikki Oppenheimer. 
the trust is dedicated to extending a financial lifeline to employees of small, medium, and micro-sized enterprises impacted by COVID-19. Let's listen into this brief interview from one of South Africa's own and a favorite of ours here at the Brentus Foundation. So thanks for joining us, Jonathan. Um, so to get us started, we just wanted to get your thoughts. In Africa today, what two things would you say are limiting to private sector growth and how can we really overcome them in the next five years? Mary Noel, you're asking me a, a question which would take weeks to answer <laughs> and you expect one in, in about three minutes. We believe uh, in you. <laughs> You're too kind. You're too kind. Uh, the, the reality of it is um, private sector capital and ultimately it's capital that is put constraint in, in most development mm -hmm. uh, is um, looking for a return uh, at a net level. And in, in much of the world, leave aside the emerging markets and in Africa in particular, the ability to make a reasonable return on your investment, what is that 10 to 15% in, in real currency uh, on an annualized basis, uh, is nearly impossible. And the kinds of businesses that you have to invest into to do that are businesses with incredibly high gross margins. Mm. And the, the obvious question is, why is that? And the answer to that is multifold. It is often because uh, the logistics systems and the environment that you're operating in are inefficient. So it's uh, very expensive to uh, get the necessary goods and services to the place where you're creating whatever you're building. Right. Uh, likewise, it's very difficult to get those uh, products that you create away from that or to provide the services to the larger community. And as this whole process unfolds, um, this incredibly high logistical cost is often exacerbated by uh, corruption and, uh, very importantly, exacerbated by interference by the regulator. And not necessarily ill-meaning interference, but ill-conceived interference. I think that the, the intention of regulations is generally quite good. No one goes about that their daily lives and says, I'm not in the business of allowing business to survive. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. They say, we have a very good reason to do X. It's in how you do X that okay. there becomes a problem. And uh, more often than not, uh, the cost of uh, complying with government, most particularly in time, government's ambition, uh, is is exorbitant. And uh, you just think about, for example, registering a business in many countries in Africa and the fact that it isn't the question of literally uh, getting onto uh, a web portal, putting in some details, and 30 minutes later you have your business registered. Mm -hmm. It's a process which takes months, if not years. And that adds enormous cost, enormous complexity, to the business of getting business done. Right. And the effect of that is it bifurcates the market. You either end up with the market which uh, doesn't play by the regulations, the informal sector, or you end up with very large companies that can afford to work through these very cumbersome and difficult environments that are created logistically and or regulatorily or and through corruption. Yeah. 
Perfect. So I think one of the questions I wanted to ask was based on um, sort of the how government and private sector could work together. And I really like the phrasing of government as sort of a regulator, but their work not necessarily being ill-meaning, but more ill-conceived. So in terms of how the private sector and the government could work together a bit more productively, do you have some more ideas on some of those important areas of cooperation? I would add a third uh, yes, and I would add a third um, very, very important strand to that uh, mix, and that strand is that of the community or society itself. Hmm. I think that uh, government has a very, very important role to frame what is and is not acceptable to society in terms hmm. of how uh, it interacts and faces itself and its different components. Likewise, business has a very important role to play as the driver of the economy. Right. But society ultimately is the, the arbiter of that success and needs to recognize the importance of a successful economy in underpinning the lifestyle and the uh, aspirations of society and at the same time needs to act as the, uh, let me call it, um, control of error on the, on, on the regulator in a way that makes sure that the regulator doesn't uh, fall into the trap that so often exists of power corrupting and absolute power corrupting absolutely. All right. Perfect. So, Jonathan, um, you've just committed to the one billion rand um, trust towards SMMEs um, in the wake of COVID-19. You could certainly have put those funds towards a lot of other things and different ways of helping. Why the focus on SMMEs? SMMEs. Yeah. You said, uh, you SMMEs. know, in a wonderful draw, you need to extend the E. The e. <laughs> uh, I mean. Well, at the heart of it, uh, as I look out at the South African economy, mm -hmm. I see both formal and informal networks which support uh, different components. So in a formal space, to deal with the easier part first, uh, you have uh, a very effective um, and pretty efficient but not necessarily uh, corruption-free government uh, social grant system. And I think if I remember the numbers right, South Africa supports, South African government supports 16 million people through social grants on a monthly basis. That is not going to go away in this crisis. Government has a channel to get money to those people who need it, who are already registered in go for government grants. Right. So uh, while it may be necessary to find additional funding to put through that channel. The channel itself already exists. Likewise, big business, which has um, deep relationships with its banks and in many instances has scope to weather the storm uh, over a much more protracted period, likewise has uh, mechanisms or have mechanisms which will allow them to preserve the fabric of their business and employment and employees mm -hmm. are a really important piece of that fabric. Yeah. So they themselves can, in effect, in effect self-solve for many of those problems. Uh, separately from, so those are sort of the two big players in 
the formal space. Uh, in the more informal space or in the more uh, ungoverned space, uh, there are systems to support communities, whether it's the extended family system or more importantly, community-based organizations which have built networks of food distribution, uh, often sponsored by governments and local business and big business, mm -hmm. or the community itself, whether it's food to schools, whether it is uh, support in all sorts of other ways. And likewise, the NGO community often has a network of funding vehicles which don't dry up overnight and don't go away, so they can continue to provide the kind of really, really important support that they have. That really, when you, when you start taking away what remains supported, admittedly in a, in a very fragile and uh, at-risk manner, yeah. uh, you are left with the community who are doubly vulnerable. They aren't able to access the formal systems and they aren't used to accessing or participating in the informal systems uh, and, the, and the less uh, big government, big business systems. And uh, at the core of that community is the SMME sector. You've got businesses which uh, live very much on a cash uh, on a month-to-month -month basis dependent on the cash flow that they're able to create yeah. and with this dramatic contraction in the in the economic activity that we have in South Africa their very livelihoods are at risk and if I were a business owner my first priority is to preserve my business okay. and I would take any available cash that I had yeah. to protect that business that doesn't mean that that you necessarily end up protecting your employees. Mm -hmm. So we saw an opportunity to, in partnership with SMMEs that are looking to be sustainable in the long term, uh, get direct income support on a tax-free basis to the employees of those businesses in a very, very light touch, uh, very efficient manner. Yeah. And... Uh, it seemed to us that those people are some of the most at risk, apparently at this moment in time not, but likely in the future most at risk of anyone at South Africa of, of not having access to food. So the idea of providing a very limited level of income support for a limited period of time, in our particular instance with the South Africa Future Trust, 15 weeks at 750 Rand per week. Yeah. It's not a lot of money. Uh, that means that our 1 billion rand can support about 85,000 people mm -hmm. for that 15 weeks. It's nowhere near enough. The small, medium-sized business sector employs north of a million people, perhaps as much as 1.5 to 2 million people. And if you think about those as the breadwinners for their families and a dependency ratio somewhere between 5 and 7, uh, you begin to see the magnitude of the problem if they can't put food on their table on a weekly basis. Right. And they don't have a road to access uh, government grants because the registration process is cumbersome and slow and uh, the system is overwhelmed with coping with the crisis that it already faces. They can't access big business because they aren't big business. And their community-based uh, organizations which support some of the most vulnerable in their communities can't afford to take on board another call it five million uh, dependents. Yeah. So if we can get 
money in the hands of those people who traditionally have supported that community, we are absolutely playing a vital role in keeping uh, the, the, the fabric of society whole by providing a route to nutrition through the marketplace. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for making time to speak with us on this. Um, we're excited to hear about the fund and we're looking forward to what it's going to do. So today's session has been particularly insightful, especially for someone who believes that exponential growth lies in some form of pluralism, right? So it's not just state-led or private sector-led, but some sort of mishmash of both of those yeah. things. And even, you know, sort of civil um, service organizations, right? So other solidaristic um, organizations we have in society. Um, on that note, I was just reminded of a set of guiding principles that the Brentas Foundation developed last year in Swalu, actually. Um, and it's meant for government um, as they look to increase investment in the continent. So head over to our website if you get a chance and look up uh, Swalu. <laughs> Swalu Dialogue. Yes. Um, to get some insight on what the dialogue between global and South African businesses, government officials, and some civil society actors yielded. It was a very interesting discussion, and the outcomes were pretty short, uh, but also useful for um, policymakers. Okay, back to business. Um, we've learned a lot about the role of the private sector. Um, first off, um, is that we need to be able to tell where the government ends and where businesses start, um, but also that intersecting space, right? Think Venn diagram and how to capitalize on that for increased investment and growth. Secondly, uh, one of the lessons from across Asia um, is that the economic growth necessary to achieve development goals is contingent on, the, on a healthy, dynamic private sector. The state needs, needs to, get to get out, out of, of the way. way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's it for now, folks. Um, we've come to the end of this week's episode on the role of the private sector in development. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did putting it together. Join us again next week as we address the topic of youth and youth leadership in Africa. Until then, share this with at least three, four people. And and we hope you have a lovely week. Catch you next week. Thanks. Bye.